This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. In November 2021, Graham Novak texted his friend Austin Kane an idea. He wanted to buy the U.S. Constitution. Little did they know, the next week of their lives would play out like a Hollywood movie script. When we look back on the Constitution Dow, I think it will, will be remembered as a symbolic and historically significant event in crypto. To cover that moment, I sat down with Graham Novak and Miguel Piedrafita, two core contributors to the project. We dive into the intense 96 hours leading up to the bid, how decisions were coordinated, and just how they managed to raise $40 million in less than a week. This is one of the most fun episodes I can imagine. Please enjoy. So I'm so excited to have Graham and Miguel from the Constitution Dow today. I think the Constitution Dow was by far the highlight or pinnacle of the 2021 Web3 year. I think someday we'll look back on it with an even greater magnitude to what happened. So I think a great place to start, Graham, would be this famous text that you sent to Austin, that you had an idea to buy the Constitution. I don't know your friendship with Austin or what you were thinking when you sent that, but maybe just walk us through what led you to type this famous text. Austin and I had been sending messages back and forth about Web3 ideas, DAOs. I do a fair bit of research in Web3 for my, my regular job. And at some point in the morning, a group of my normie friends had been sending messages back and forth. And one of them had sent this link to a Reuters article that published about three or four weeks earlier. This friend works at an auction house and it just kind of jokingly said, hey, who wants to buy me an early Christmas present? I remember opening the article. At the same time, I'd been reading something about Flamingo Dow. Actually, they do group purchases of NFTs. So as I was reading this article about the constitution for sale, there's two things that struck me. The first was that, oh my God, this thing's expected sales price is like $15 million, which I'm not a historian, but struck me as just shockingly low. And then the second thing that I was thinking about was, oh my God, this would be perfect for Web3. This could be something that a DAO could definitely purchase. So I was texting Austin and I just said, hey, I've got this really wacky idea. Why didn't tell me how insane this is? And he said, I like insane ideas hit me. And I just said, we should start an acquisition DAO to buy the constitution. And it all kind of spiraled out of control from there. <laughs> and so after, what was Austin's response? So he says, I'm in. What were kind of your like steps of what you were going to do first? The first ideas we'd been bouncing back and forth then, I said, maybe we could do it through Party DAO, which is a platform to do group purchases. We started ideating to say, this is super memeable. This, there could be jokes and references to Nick Cage, National Treasure, just thought it'd be hilariously symbolic of the holy grail of real world collectibles going digital. And then Austin was suggesting, oh, yeah, we could start reaching out to people. Obviously, there were some reminiscent flavors of what was done with the uh, Wu Tang Clan album. And we could kind of model it off of that a little bit. Maybe we're going to do something related to NFTs. So we started bouncing back and forth ideas of, okay, who do we reach out to? Who do we want to get involved? How do we actually go about starting this thing? Because what became immediately obvious was we've got literally one week from that day until the auction. Yeah, I think that's one of the incredible parts that I didn't realize as someone who participated. I had no idea how quick this went from idea to a $50 million war chest of money to bid on something. I guess in that moment, clearly you have a really great idea. You think it's possible. It's so audacious. What did you think the chances of this ever working were during that first conversation? Less than 1%. <laughs> At that point, if you can recall, what were the things that you were most worried about? The immediate question is, how the heck do you get a group like Sotheby's comfortable with a weird, wacky thing called a DAO 
that they certainly probably haven't dealt with a whole lot or don't know a lot about? And how do you get them comfortable with something like that? And also, how do you convince enough people that this is a good idea and we should actually raise the money? It was legal and money. Those are the two big barriers. Before we go to the money, after you and Austin decide you're going to attempt this crazy idea, who are the next people in order you call it? Because one thing that I found interesting is as a constitution now took a life it's its own, I started meeting more people in Web3. Almost everywhere I went, I met a, quote, founder of the Constitution DAO. It felt like the core members was a very large group of people. There was lots of people claiming to be the originator of the idea. It was actually Packy who I was talking with. He's like, you need to talk to Graham and Austin about this. So tell me about who are the people that were kind of formed outside of the group after you two. Austin and I basically just immediately started messaging lots of people. So I messaged people like Packy. I know Matt Wang got a message right away a couple of other folks from other funds. Austin sent a message to Julian and Julian started strategizing with us right off the bat. I know we sent a message to Dame. Dame was really helpful. And I think him and Julian, I think were some of the first two that really helped it blow up because Julian had this Twitter thread that people were like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. Dame had something out there among the lines of everyone pause the internet. We have to figure out what's going on in Dow world. And all of a sudden people are like, you know, what's going on? He had, he had this screenshot that from, of the message Austin sent him that says, coordinating a DAO to buy the US Constitution from Sotheby's. It's just ridiculous enough of a headline that everyone's like, okay, wait, what? <laughs> and the initial reaction is, I didn't even know it's for sale or that's an option. So it's just ridiculous enough that people are like, okay, this is cool. Tell me more. Talking about kind of the two major uh, gating issues or money and legal. As you started texting all of your friends and saying, we've got this crazy idea, how can we help? How did the roles and responsibilities start to break up of like who was doing what? I think one of the most interesting things about an acquisition DAO, something like Flamingo, Tribute Labs, it's been going on for years. They've worked a lot of kinks out. You guys came together so quickly. How did you know who was doing what? Were you assigning roles or did people just start doing stuff, stepping on each other and just trying to get stuff done? Especially at first, there was a lot of people doing overlapping things, which obviously in DAOs are just a series of coordination problems and coordination challenges to a degree. So on that very first day, we basically just started telling everyone, hey, we're going to host this kickoff call at 8 p.m. because we've got to get organized somehow. Leading up to 8 p.m., I mean, that afternoon, I started messaging Sotheby's. Austin started messaging fund managers. I was messaging people who we thought might be able to be contributors. We, We started doing a little bit of everything. And it wasn't until based on a kickoff call where he said, hey, let's get organized in some way. And the organization actually didn't happen basically until we launched the Discord and really started getting people in the same place. Because we really just didn't even know who's interested, willing, and able to contribute. In that early group that you and Miguel were part of, when did you start to branch out into, I don't even know these people? So it sounds like it's kind of like a, like an emergent action. But at first, it's like, I know these people. When did you have some of the first people who are like, I don't know who these people are, but they're still trying to help with this core mission? We had this call that Graham and Austin had organized. And then we get into this call and we say, and we figure out like, these guys are for real. They are talking to like, so they are talking to lawyers, like this is more than a meme. Also, after we created the Discord, we started like reaching out to more people in the community that could be helpful. We got some legal advice from uh, Syndicate DAO and we got like some people that could help with specific issues. And I feel like at least for me, that was at the start after the call when I was like, okay, so I'm now working with people that I've maybe seen around on Twitter that like I've never talked to. So after day one, you have a call, you have a group, you start doing stuff. What's kind of the first big action that you went after? Was it the legal side, the fundraising? I mean, I know that people are doing different things, but what became the first issue that you felt you needed to resolve? So I think the first three workflows that really got defined was raising money and getting soft commitments, building the smart contract mechanism to actually be able to accept capital and to coordinate with Sotheby's to allow us to actually enter the auction. And all of these things are occurring concurrently. You mentioned, Graham, that you reached out to Sotheby's. Do you call a 1-800 number and say, hey, I'm a DAO and we're a bunch of people. We're going to try to do this crazy thing. Or what was your connection to Sotheby's and how did that first conversation with them go? My first message to them was that morning before we had the kickoff call. And I just found a general email that was crypto at Sotheby's because they've done some crypto thing before. And the message was very straightforward. I'm coordinating a DAO to purchase the constitution. We have substantial support. I want to inquire about the logistics of payments, about your terms and services, and the best way to coordinate things from your side. And they actually got back super quickly. They said that they weren't accepting cryptocurrency for this particular one, 
but there might be ways for us to work together. And I was kind of like, okay, pause that. Meanwhile, a bunch of other stuff is going on. And then the best way for us to really get in touch with them, though, came from the help of another woman named Sabrina Hahn. So Sabrina Hahn is an art curator. And someone had said, hey, I've got this great connection. She understands crypto. She understands the art world. She might be able to make a little bit more of a warm introduction because I had just sent a cold email. And so then next thing we know, there's another email chain where she's directed us directly to the people involved. And so she says, hey, here's a couple of people from the organization, connects us to David Schrader. His nickname is Trader the Trader. They basically said, okay, you know, we've dealt with this maybe once before. This is a still novel thing. We had months and months to kind of plan and prepare with this other group. We're not sure if we could do this in one week. And we said, all right, we're going to do our best. And what were some of the stipulations that Sotheby's made to you? One of the things that's really interesting with a DAO like Flamingo, they're a digital DAO buying digital objects. They've got legal structure that maps back to the real world. But here it was a DAO, a digital organization trying to buy a real world good. So what were some of the requirements that Sotheby's said, you are going to have to meet these in order for you to actually purchase this thing? There were about three different initial options that we presented to them where we said, hey, here's the purpose of Constitution DAO. Here's what we're trying to do. And here's the options that we think we're going to pursue. One of them is we presented an LLC registered as a Wyoming DAO. One of them where basically we'd be working with like a buyer's agent who'd place a bid on our behalf or work with a museum who'd place a bid on our behalf. One of the options was to basically go through a nonprofit organization. The end goal of this thing was to actually put it into a museum and to put it into place that's publicly accessible, publicly viewable. And so our, the question was, is going a nonprofit route feasible? And so we laid out basically two or three options to them and said, hey, which of these might work? And we actually started pursuing almost all three of these incorporation options simultaneously. And at this point, did you get legal advice or did the legal team join you? At what point did you engage actual lawyers to figure out we have to structure this? Basically, I believe at about one day into it, I'm not even sure exactly who looped him in, but someone said, oh, we've got to get Will Papper from Syndicate Tao involved. Will's not someone that I had had a chance to meet previously. Thank God he got involved because he understands the ins and outs of these things tremendously well. And the entire goal of Syndicate Tao is to help people form entities to go about creating investment groups, investment vehicles. And so he understands the ins and outs of these laws very, very well. It was him who kind of off the bat said, okay, well, we can eliminate this first option because we're going to have a lot more than 99 people. Option one is doing some type of like investment club, but that just isn't going to be feasible. And option two that we actually pursued for quite some time was, so we ended up turning down the option of doing the Wyoming LLC. We ended up saying, hey, we're going to do a Delaware LLC and basically creating an organization that has just a couple of members and then having a legal contract tied between the LLC and the DAO itself to say, hey, here's the obligations and the fiduciary responsibilities of it. And there would have to be some sense of air-gapped trust involved in that. But the actual option we ended up going with, option three, was Will said, hey, I got another group that we've got to get involved. It's a group called Endowment, E-N-D-A-O, Mint, which has a couple of people who have been doing a lot of tremendous work about how to get people to donate money, donate cryptocurrencies philanthropically, how to uh, make contributions with cryptocurrencies. And they've helped people with various types of structuring before. And they introduced us to a concept to say, hey, you can actually place the bid officially through us, endowment. And then you, having done a charitable act post-auction, we can spin you off as your own legal entity that would basically be controlled as the DAO. So the actual bid would be placed by endowment and basically would act as a sub-account of endowment during the actual bid process. This is where I think it got a little bit confusing for myself as the information was coming out. When you were buying, so the token was called People, when you were sending money, was I making a donation? I mean, I know that there's a lot of questions about, do you have no rights, but you had governance rights, or the idea was I could have some voting power. But what were you actually buying when you sent ETH and got People in exchange? So we had to be very clear about our messaging that people were purchasing governance of the constitution. If you were to say, hey, you're purchasing fractional ownership of this, then you get into questions of is this security? 
how does this play out legally? So we said, we're just not even going to cross that chasm. We'll make it clear to people, you're making a donation and you will have governance of this document. You're actually purchasing the ability to help direct and guide and decide what happens with this document. So as we presented it to people, we said, hey, we want you as contributors, as donors to help us decide what to do with this, where to place it. And we thought there was this kind of interesting concept about depending on the composition of the donors, you could express a lot of different types of views. Do you want to place this document in the middle of the United States in areas where they might not have firsthand access to these types of things? Do you want to have it to or foreign countries to allow other people in other places around the world to experience what the constitution is? Do you want to place it in New York and DC in a major metropolitan hub? So there's all these questions about how people were actually able to express their preferences based off where they would choose to direct the document. And this option three that you ended up going with, had you won it, if I just explain it back to you, people were going to donate money to endowment, endowment was going to purchase it, then they would spin off an entity. And of that entity, were the core members going to be officials of that entity? And then the voting was to influence those people? So I think you nailed most of the parts in there. So essentially, after endowment makes the purchase of the constitution, they spin off a sub-nonprofit where we as a DAO are able to direct the document and do something charitable with it, such as place it in a museum to be publicly accessible. Okay. And so let's talk about, because I know it was being hotly debated in a very fast time period of like what the governance model was going to be. I think there was a lot of options flying around. I don't know, Miguel, if you had got feedback from the community of one token, one vote, one wallet, one vote, quadratic voting. What were your thoughts on how voting and governance decisions would be made? We had some internal discussions, but we never ended up nailing down that because we never had anything to vote. In the end, tables work between one vote, one token, and quadratic voting because there were some really big donations at the end that actually helped us reach the goal. There was like some concern about having everyone feel represented and having anyone be everyone that contributed be able to meaningfully influence where the document went to and other governance things. Yeah, so basically the agreement that we had with the community or what we've been messaging was, hey, we have a very short time period. We're going to make a lot of decisions. We're going to move really fast. We're going to acquire the document. And the money that you're providing is going to allow us to purchase the document And after that, we're going to begin releasing more and more governance tools and mechanisms to the community and to the DAO over time. Decentralization has to happen in a piecemeal, slower process. You can't just say, all right, here's the keys. That's the kingdom. Just control everything. You have to slowly give bit by bit in a way that allows decentralization to happen in a reasonable and responsible fashion. That makes sense. Syndicate DAO enters the picture. They help you guys figure out the legal structure that's going to work. And just because so much happened in such a short timeline, I want to try to go back and get it as accurate as possible. So it's day two. You now have a better legal structure. You're making contact with Sotheby's. At this point, do you have any sense of what's the size of the group that's actually working on this? To put it in perspective, within the next 24 hours, our Discord exceeded 2,000 people. We garnered over $3 million in soft commitments. By this point, we had engaged Sotheby's on requirements to enter the auction. We had outlined those two or three routes for building funding mechanisms, two or three routes for creating legal entities, the website, and the website went live. That was all basically the first 24 hours. I'm curious if it happened at any point, but was there a moment where you were like, as happy as I was about this, this was a really bad idea and I can't get out? Was there ever moments of doubt? You start off day one on the text, 1% chance. Now we're on day two. You've got 2,000 people that are excited. You got $3 million. You had no plan of 24 hours before. Two-part question is one, at what percent are you on day two of the odds of this actually happening? And at any moment, were you like, man, I don't know if we should have done this? First of all, at this point, we had not taken any money. We had made soft commitments. We didn't take any money from anyone until like four days before the auction. So those first days were just like preparation, making sure we had everything working in legal before taking anyone's money. There was never a regret of like, what happens if it works? If it doesn't work, we just like lo- lose the bet and that's pretty much it. We are not like, we were kind of safe legally and stuff. On the other side, there was like definitely a moment where we were like, 
this completely blew up when we started like getting interview requests from like New York Times, Washington Post, and all those big publications. I was like, we started getting actual millions of dollars. But for me, it, it was just like, this is a really funny joke from maybe we can actually attempt this for like, wow, there's like a chance that we actually pull this off. At no point was I scared of actually getting it. I, on the other hand, was absolutely terrified at multiple points. Absolutely terrified. I think the thing that's the absolute worst feeling was the sense of, oh my gosh, we have all this money in the treasury. I don't think I got scared until basically we were actually legitimately responsible for people's money. And even though you can feel really great about the people working on your team, you can feel really great about the contracts that you've released. You can feel really great about the processes you've put in place. We're building an airplane on the fly. We're putting together all these pieces as it's actually happening. God forbid something goes wrong and we lose someone's money. That's like the absolute worst case scenario. Yeah, I think that I was trying to understand. I don't know if there's anything I can comp to, maybe a startup, but starting a company in four days with strangers to raise $50 million, as scary as it is to start a company, I'm not sure something really compares to that velocity of movement. Just something is going to go wrong. When you're thinking about the security side of it, so it's day two, you have soft commitments, you've got a legal structure, you're starting to move in the right direction. When did it really start to feel that you hit this zeitgeist moment? The internet really did pause and every tweet was about Nicolas Cage or scrolls. When did that moment happen in this four-day period? For me, day three. Day one was like, this is a moonshot. We got to give it a go because this would be so cool. And I'd kick myself if we didn't try Day two was, oh my gosh, we've got a lot of people who are excited. This could actually happen, but like maybe 5% probability. By day three, at the end of this thing, so just put in perspective, so on November 13th then, we knew that we were going with Juicebox. We had set up basically Juicebox, the Gnosis Safe, the Multisig. We had an actual like media plan. We knew that we had a bunch of people who were ready to hit the ground running. But by day three for me was like, oh my gosh, maybe 25 or 30% probability. And I like to be conservative on things, but that's when it really, for me, was like, wow, this is actually super feasible. I think it'll be interesting to talk about all the tools that you use to try to coordinate people because I think that's so critical to the story. Genosis Safe, Multisig, Juicebox. Those were really three core components that you relied on. Can you just explain what they are and how you use them? Juicebox pretty much is like the platform that we use to actually receive the money and supply the tokens. So it's kind of like a fundraising platform in a way. We ended up going with them. They actually weren't that well-known before we went with them. They were one of the options. Mirror was another one. It had been battle-tested with buying some nouns from an NFT project, but it had not like gone through a formal audit. According to our the interface, the ease of use, it had been trusted with like more money than we initially honestly thought that we were going to get, at least for me. So we ended up using that. And we are also using a multi-sig, using Gnosis. Those were like these smart contract pieces. Other than that, Discord and Twitter for like interacting with people and building a community were the tools that we used. Also Zoom for calls. So Miguel, just to follow up on that, who decided, I think one of the interesting things to kind of explore is just how decision-making happens. So Juicebox isn't the only application or protocol that can take money and exchange tokens. So there's a bunch of them. Someone has to make the decision, oh, we should go with this. Walk me through how you said, let's use Juicebox. Yeah. So first we made a list of options. We had calls with all the team, talking to all the teams. Then we had like a group with people with, from Mirror. We had a group from people from Usebox. We talked with everyone. Syndicate was an option as well. Yeah. Yeah. They actually have a funding mechanism. So aside from actually getting us advice, we considered using them and their tools, but just decided it wasn't quite right for us. There is at this point, 30 contributors. How many contributors are on the Zoom call? It's around 30, 35. So there's 35 people. We're on a Zoom call. Let's just imagine, take us back to that Zoom. Everyone's like, okay, we can go Syndicate, Juicebox, Mirror, there's five other things. Is it like hands up, hands down, what should we use? Or is it, hey, who's the most technically smart on smart contracts? Whatever you think we'll go with. By this point, there was a small group of us, about five or six, including Julian, Brian, Alice, Miguel, myself, who we had a bunch of one-on-one conversations with Syndicate, Mirror, Juicebox, and basically just weighed the pros and cons and said, hey, of these, two of these really aren't going to work. Juicebox really was going to be the only mechanism that was going to be sufficient for our needs. The reason why we especially liked them was they had a really ideal mechanism that said, if we raise 
$40 million and we end up bidding 35, their mechanism allowed us to take that 5 million and redistribute it to all the contributors on a pro rata basis. And that was something that we couldn't do with some of the other ones. So in the event that we did win, we wanted to be able to handle that situation. It makes me think that that's a great example of, okay, let's split off. Let's get the right people to meet with the possible vendors we can use. This one makes sense. What's an example as you're going through this where there was at least a conflict or a split decision amongst the group that we should do this and someone else said we should do that? And how did that get resolved? Basically, we had the system where if there were irreversible decisions or important strategic decisions, everyone just put that into a message and said, hey, here's the two options or here's what we're suggesting. We'd have this fairly informal thumbs up, thumbs down vote. And if we reached the general threshold we used for the core team was 20 up votes, we basically said, hey, we're going to go ahead and go with it. And obviously on some of these things, there would be a little bit of contention or we have a call and talk through it a little bit. But for the vast majority of things, not to oversimplify what we were doing, but because we had such a short period of time, if you had a group who was focusing on finding the contribution mechanism, so for example, our little subgroup of five, we came back and said, look, juice box is the option. This is what we need to go with. Everyone just trusted that we'd done our homework, we'd done our research, that was the best available option, and that was what we needed to do. Yeah, I think that's one of the most wild things that you guys can share. Being an outsider watching it and having no idea what was going on, it's hard to wrap my brain around a bunch of strangers, semi-related people, all with this mission, moving this quickly and making decisions. I do think it's a really good point you make that you have this forcing mechanism where you only have four days. So you're not building a company. You're not saying, you know, what market should we go after? What product should we release? But I still think it is absolutely awe-inspiring that this many people could solve this many problems so quickly without there being a dedicated leader of like, okay, you do this, you do that. Yeah. And I feel like a big component of that is like, sure, it was like a really, really big team. I don't think any of us knew everyone else on the team, but I feel like we pretty much trusted each other because these were people that had reputation in the community or that were like friends of people that we trusted. So yeah, at least for me, I feel like I pretty much trusted, I mean, not enough to just like send $40 million to one address, but like enough to like consider as we can say that they had done their homework and that the outline that the summary that they made of the options and the things to do was actually correct. Tell me about the decision on the multi-sig. I feel like at one point there was some anonymous people and then everyone doxed themselves. Am I misremembering it that when, when we first went to send the money in, there was this idea that there was going to be a multi-sig of 13, nine people would need to come together to basically take any action with the money. And I think at first, not everyone was doxed. How did you decide who should have control over this large sum of money? And what was the decision on doxing them? So at first, none of the people were doxed. We first decided for everyone's security, because we are maybe going to be controlling a lot of money with this and saying who has control over this may open people to be targeted of like attacks of any way. We decided at first we are just not going to name anyone. And we still like brought some people from outside the team, from the community, really respectable people, to make sure that we had like subset of people that people would trust, even if we didn't reveal who there was. But as we started like getting some money, people were really claiming like we really want to know. We did have a component where like the DAO was not completely decentralized from the start, which I feel like some people expected, just because there was no time to actually pull it off while doing every decision completely decentralized and having like a treasury contract that managed thing and got votes. So we had to pull the multi-sig and to be able to like respect that decision and to say, yeah, we're going this way because it's the only option, but there's some trust behind this decision. We decided to just like reveal everyone who was there and just like be extra careful with any attacks or anything that we could get. For me personally, it was really important that we did choose to dox it. I think one of the things that made our project and our team pretty unique is we just put everything out there. We said, hey, we don't have anything to hide. We're not trying to be sketchy. There's nothing weird here. We have a solid contract, a solid plan, and we're prepared to tie our names to it. I think that us willing to do that publicly gave a lot of people confidence to say, oh, like if something funny happens, if money disappears, or if money doesn't get refunded, or we know who you are. And I don't think we had disillusionment at any point to think that people couldn't find us. So if you have good intentions to a certain degree, the only challenge or the thing that you're worried about then is, okay, someone then going to try to come after me, to Miguel's point. 
But I thought it was pretty important for us to put us and our names out there. Was it hard to decide who was going to be on the multi-sig or not? Or was it very obvious who the 13 signers would be? It's funny you say that. It wasn't a hard decision. No one had a bunch of controversial, oh my God, I should have been on it or was fighting about it. At the same time though, that multi-sig probably could have gotten reformulated in 15 different ways with a multitude of other people. I'd say about half of the multi-sig roughly were people who were super involved, core team members, very involved from the onset and were really working day in, day out, 24-7 to make this thing happen. And the other half of the members, for example, Cooper Turley, Dame, Lauren, a couple of other people, Graham from here, were people who weren't necessarily actively working on the project, but are highly credible, high ethics individuals that are known by the community that having them on the multi-sig would likely make people feel better to say, hey, I know that Cooper is not going to do something bad with the money, or I know that Dame's not going to do something unethical with it. He's only going to vote in a direction that makes sense and is logical. So we basically made sure that we had people involved that people trusted from the outside perspective. Frankly speaking, I'm not sure there's a whole lot of people that necessarily knew myself. Having myself on there, maybe that doesn't add that much credibility. So now we're on day three. When did you turn Juicebox on and like watch money start flowing into the account? So November 14th, that evening. So this is on day four. We kicked off on November 11th. We actually initialized the contract and began accepting money. So now we're on day four. We skipped over day three, but I can imagine a lot still happening in there. I guess it would be fun to ask you, since you kept track of this, which is really cool, what was your ratio of day three success? When we opened up the smart contract, what happened was 10 minutes into opening the smart contract, we had already $250,000 of contributions. And I think we are all looking around going, oh my God, obviously we don't expect that rate to sustain itself. But if we come anywhere close to that trajectory, this could be really feasible. And that's why I left walking away going, yeah, I'd say at least 30% probability we could do this. And was it always a decision to put the number on the website? Because that became like a huge thing. Everyone wished as the money started to roll in, as this became everyone's topic, I feel like that website, there was this Constitution Now website where you could see how much money had been raised, which I think we'll come back to later. That's some controversy or critique over should that number be shown. But it was also this positive thing because if there was a 400 bucks in there, nobody would have taken it seriously. But as the thing clicked over the first million and then two million, it became like, oh my God, this is a lot of money. How did you make that decision of how to share that information with everyone that was participating? When we were building the website, we always had that in mind as well, like one of the things that we wanted to put front and center because it helped like carry around the momentum and actually show people like, where are we? And like, is this possible and the rate and everything? And I actually do think without showing the numbers, like some people say that maybe we shouldn't have shown like how much money we had to be to people that were being against us, which has like its own technical challenges for all the reasons. But still, I don't think we would have gotten quite the momentum we got and we would actually be able to like reach our funding goals without showing that number and without allowing people to just like be refreshing the page and seeing the number climb up. Of all the things that are worth being critical of, that's one where I go, I've got reservations about it. I'm glad that we showed the numbers. It helped drive excitement, enthusiasm. People are sitting there refreshing going, oh God, this is interesting. This could happen. I'm putting my money in. A huge part of what made it happen. You have a legal structure. You have this amazing group of people deciding, voting, all of these pieces. You have the technical structure. Now you're accepting money. How did the soft commits with some of the larger investors? Because that was something people heard about but didn't understand. I think maybe... Can you dive into... like There was this idea that maybe 15 million had been committed by big investors, but it wasn't necessarily known who they were. So there were a handful of groups like Metaversal, Boshen, and at uh, Fenbushi, Standard Crypto a number of groups who ended up contributing capital. And a part of the early outreach process was just sending the messages and saying, hey, here's what we're doing. Here's the plan we've put into place. How do we get you comfortable with it? How do we be as transparent as possible? And we had a dedicated team of people who was trying to do that outreach, trying to do active communication with each of these players and partners to get capital commitments. There was also a soft commitments page, which admittedly, by day three, we didn't know how valid those commitments are. I think it's fair to say that the commitments aren't valid until they're actually in the smart contract. When we saw these numbers start ticking up, maybe it was 15 million. The number I remember was having at least 11 million before we opened up the 
contract for contributions. I remember thinking, man, we're going to find out pretty fast. Are these a lot of real numbers? Or are these a bunch of people just saying, yeah, I will contribute money, but I'm going to wait till everyone else does it first. So we're getting close to auction day. Either of you have a number in your head. We need to get this number to be credible at the auction. Internally, we knew that we needed at least like 30, 35 million to actually be competitive and have a chance of like winning this. And I think like the internal target for like where we would be comfortable was always about like 40, 40 something. Graham, I had different numbers. Yeah. So Sotheby's had told us to enter the auction, you have to have 13 million. So that was the bare minimum threshold to even participate. We thought that there's no way this document's going for less than 25 because recent Sotheby's auctions had far underpriced it. And so their range was 15 to 20. We thought there's no chances going for less than 25. We really want to have 30 to even be vaguely competitive. And I think, of course, I think all of us realized that we were going to need more than that to actually purchase it. But we had really no sense how high it's thing going to go. We did have a number of conversations with historians, auction house experts, people to give us a sense of who are the bidders out there? How is this possibly going to go down? And there's only so many people in the US and in the whole world who are going to bid tens of millions of dollars for this document. So we just asking them, who's going to be bidding? How much do you think they're going to bid? And trying to find those numbers out. So it's auction day. Did you guys actually attend the auction in person? How many of you were actually there, if any? I think we got a majority of the team in New York City for the auction. It was more than 50%, I'd say. Not everyone was able to make it, but we didn't actually attend Sotheby's. So during the day, we actually saw the Constitution at Sotheby's, but we had a side room in a different building that we all basically had this viewing party because a lot of people and everyone kind of knows the famous you know, streaming where you've got David, David and Brooke on phones on either side. No one knows who's actually bidding. And of course, we were with David. A lot of people thought we were with Brooke. And so we're on the other side of the phone with them from our viewing room. That was one of my favorite parts as we were watching it of just the internet screaming, are we with David? Are we with Brooke? Even if it was accidental, not knowing made it all that much better just from an experience of like, we didn't know if we were winning or not. And everyone's just speculating on who it was. Who was on the phone with David? So that was Robbie from Endowment was actually on the phone with them. So being the official entity that was bidding, he needed to be the person who, who was actually saying, yes, bid. Okay. And so the bidding starts and we'll get to this because it's just, you can't even make this up. What point did you start to realize who was on the phone with Brooke? I think most of our core team, at least I knew that David was on the phone. We'd gotten very strict advice from Sotheby's to say, hey, you're not supposed to tell people who your person is. You're supposed to keep the cards close to your chest. Now, obviously, we've got an open contract. People know how much money that we've raised. And so to a certain degree, maybe that point is moot, but they basically said, you're not supposed to tell people who is your official bidder. It's supposed to be anonymous. So we didn't tell people. That's the thing. Like I was watching this live with like a few friends on a live stream. And I, for like, until we actually posted the thread to Twitter, which I got sent like a notes-up screenshot from like some phone, like this kind of like apology and just like tweeted that. But like until reading that, until like 30 seconds before posting that, I had no idea if we had one or not. So I think what was wild as just an outside participant is a bunch of Twitter spaces. The auction ends, Twitter spaces start. The first Twitter spaces is we won the constitution. And I'm high-fiving my wife. I'm like, oh my God, it really happened. This is the coolest thing ever. Then someone hops on the Twitter spaces, says, I'm one of the multi-sigs. We didn't win. Then someone hopped on 30 seconds or maybe a minute or two later, we did win. And so it was this <laughs> roller coaster of we won. We didn't win. We did win. No, we definitely lost. And <laughs> I think the letdown because of that ride of like, I think this is the most amazing thing people could do that you could bring to use this technology to buy this asset. I just really can't even put into words how special that would have been. And so that when they told you you didn't win, what was it like from your side? You just pulled all these people together. I know you're proud of all the work you did, but how did it feel in that moment? Just beyond devastating. There's something crazy about tens of thousands of people coming together to accomplish something and what everyone deemed was a completely impossible timeline to organize. And to actually get to the auction felt surreal. It felt amazing. But to say, hey, we can actually accomplish this and to end up losing, at the end of the day, an auction is a competition and we lost. We had less money than our competitor and that sucked. 
maybe it was because I was a little bit abstracted from there and I wasn't like there in person living everything lively. I did feel like we actually like got really, really close to doing something that everyone thought was impossible. Also like in the process to that, we got like millions of people to hear really good things about like Web3 and DAOs and all these inspire people to think like these things are possible. And we also managed to like onboard thousands of people that had never used crypto to use crypto to do all these things. So I still felt like would have been much better if, if we won, but I was pretty happy with what we had achieved. That's awesome. I can say that me and my friends that were involved the night felt absolutely gutted. Like I was cheering you guys on. I might've got Miguel's. I felt a little bit better about it 24, 48 hours. I'm like, no, you guys should be super proud of everything you did. But in that moment, it was devastating. Waking up the next morning and getting the Wall Street Journal to see that Ken Griffin, one of the most successful investors and richest people on the planet, who has a reputation in crypto that isn't that popular one. I literally thought that this was a movie that you all scripted. Like there really couldn't be this villain against the people type moment. When did you guys find out it was Ken Griffin? And then I've got some follow-up about the back and forth of what actually happened with him. I found out the next day. At first it was whispers and hearsay. And then it was the actual articles publication. I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, this really was Ken Griffin. Because at first, just like with the announcement of us falsely winning and then having to explain, yeah, we lost. When we heard it was Ken Griffin, I was like, well, that's almost like too movie-like. That's probably not him. I'll believe it when I see it. And then it came out, I was like, okay, yeah, that really did happen. The article comes out and there's kind of an odd reaction in the press where in the crypto world, they're like, there can't be a better villain to the group of ragtag people trying to bid on the constitution the popularity is obviously low amongst that cohort. But then it comes out that there's an article with Bloomberg, which is still up, that you can go quote, I want to make sure I get it right, where basically one of his PR people says that his son calls him and tells him he wants to buy it, but there's no reason why his son necessarily wants it. So there's this amazing gift from a father to a son that he was in contact with your group the night of the auction. And then he reached out to you all again to talk about a joint governance. And so there's been a lot of back and forth if any of this really happened or if this was trying to make the PR stories different. I'm just curious, did you ever speak with Ken Griffin or did anyone on the team that you're aware of speak with Ken Griffin or his team at any point? Yes, we spoke to Ken Griffin's team post facto after the news hit public media and it was known that Ken Griffin bought this. Someone from his team reached out and we, we had a conversation with them. Yeah. After you lose and you're gutted and you lost it to one of the richest people on the planet, his team calls you. What was that conversation like? So I believe Sabrina Han was the one who had put together the conversation to start with. Someone from his team was basically had said something along the lines of, hey, their original proposal was something along the lines of, you guys are still interested in the digital rights. You guys want to be able to make some type of NFT out of this. We might be able to have some type of co-governance structure. And exactly what they were proposing was not entirely clear. Okay. And did you at any point consider doing something with them? Or did you say no? Where did that conversation end? I feel like we voted internally, like as we mentioned before, doing like the whole Discord voting and also got on a call talking about it. And it was like pretty clear sentiment among the team that like, they weren't offering us the thing that we wanted, which was the actual governance over the physical document to do the thing that we had promised people to do. And what they were offering was just like digital rights to be able to mint something that wasn't what we were set up to do. This was something that definitely had some conflict on the team where some people said, hey, we just want to do something. There might be some option to move forward, give us some sense of win. There were some people who said, I don't want to work with Ken Griffin. I'm very opposed to him. There was a lot of mixed views on the team. Uh, but overall, the majority consensus was we're not interested in doing anything. So one small detail, but I think it will be interesting for the people that were following it closely. There was this notion that the number that the Constitution DAO had was very public, so that Ken is one of the smartest people in the world, especially at getting data and edge. So he was very aware of what it was. But one thing I just think is kind of an interesting detail was I'd heard this idea that whatever the bid was, that there was a dollar amount on top of that that was required to take ownership of the Constitution, that you can't just show up with a manila envelope and say, I'll take the document now. 
what does it mean to buy a document of so much historical value? And what were the requirements above the money you had that you also had to cover to get the winning bid? There's really two things that go into it. One is the required auction house fees. This is just something that Sotheby's takes off the top. It's formulaic, it's calculated, and you basically just deduct. You're walking backwards in the number of what is my maximum bid. And then we also added a buffer to say, after we purchase this document, we're going to need to store, custody, transport this, and to really give it the proper care and condition it needs. So we need to add in some money for that as well. And when we backed into it, the highest bid we came out to was $40 million. I think the reason why so many people were confused on the night of the auction was people knew publicly that they'd seen a number that was well above $43 million or $42 million, whatever the official number that you heard the night of the auction. Because they heard that number and they knew we had more, people just assumed we had to have won. They didn't think about the fact there are additional fees and considerations that were necessary. Was all that figured out in advance? Or were you like, if we win, I'll figure out how you store the US Constitution, secure it, custody it? Or was all that work done sometime in those four days prior? You'll actually get to hear a very special nugget that I don't think anyone really knows about publicly, which was the plans for the document that we wanted to present to the community. So the idea was we were going to allow the community to present proposals. And we also had one ourselves that we were going to put forward to say, hey, if no one has another idea, this would be absolutely excellent. Federal Hall is in New York City. It's the original home of Congress. So before the Capitol moved in the 1700s, it was a bit of a compromise between politicians to move it further south. I believe Hamilton got the treasury out of this move. In New York City, at Federal Hall, right across from Wall Street, was where the original home of the Constitution was. It's where George Washington was inaugurated. It's where the Bill of Rights was passed. It's where the first congressional sessions were held. And they are currently going through a restoration process. And we had gotten in touch with them and their team. And they thought this document that could be shared and cumulatively bought by the people and would be something that was truly this passionate movement by this general public, truly representative of what the actual Constitution itself is and means, could be this centerpiece display at the original home of Congress for the 250th anniversary of this country going into 2026. I'm completely gutted again. Like, oh, hearing that makes me just want to, I'm not happy, Miguel. I want to win again. (laughs) That's tough. I mean, that would have been such an amazing idea. I think that's such a cool story. And I really appreciate you sharing it. We didn't win. Going to the Discord. I'll tell you, since I knew none of you, my instinct was like, oh man, should I put that much money into this thing? Like, how do we get it out? Do I get it back? What happens? A couple of things happen. I think you guys were exhausted. You sent out a message. Hey, Let the team breathe. We'll be back to you in the morning about what to do. My phone starts going off because lots of people, and and we'll get to this, who had never participated in crypto, this was like the first thing they did. And they're like, what now? So the next day, there's, I think I have this right, there's information. If you want to get a refund, you can go to Juicebox, exchange your people. You'll get exactly the amount of ETH you put in, excluding the gas. But then there's also this idea of a new token called We the People. Was that ever decided in advance or was that a post-loss, here's an idea we might try. Frankly speaking, so what happened was we'd been making lots of decisions very quickly. We have at the very top of our mind, we need to be able to provide refunds to people in a very expedient fashion. Because otherwise, they'll start wondering, is it a rug pull? Where's my money at? Is it safe? How do we get money back to people as soon as possible? And the plan that we decided on to start with looked slightly different. And we'd made an announcement related to it. And then very quickly, we said, oh, well, actually, let's just go ahead and use the juice box mechanisms. Django from Juicebox said, this will, this will be a better way to do it. And so we did end up changing the plans and announcing it a couple of hours later. I'm trying to remember the timeline it is the trickier part for me because all this happens in pretty rapid succession. The part I would add is we're all sleep deprived. We're all exhausted. We're just trying to get this stuff done. We're trying to get things pushed out to people. The ending mechanism we land on was, yes, you put in one Ether, you get back 1 million tokens. On the reverse side, it's the exact same thing. Put back a million tokens, get back one Ether. to so the exact same exchange rate. The only thing you lose is gas. We had said we are going to take a snapshot of the tokens, meaning that at a certain time, we're going to just like take a photo of the amount of tokens that everyone has. Are we going to use that to process the refunds? And then after that, we realized this may be confusing. This also was done this way to enable 
us to like provide a path to continue with this thing, which is another thing we haven't discussed. And we ended up deciding to not go that route and actually just like shut up the project. And so with all those things in mind, we said like, it's actually much easier for everyone and it requires less work in our part, which was also a concern because again, we hadn't slept in like a week. So we ended up saying, instead of doing that, we're just like going to go with the more simple way of you just click the refund button and you get your money back. Was the We the People token from the core group or was that from the community, this notion that you could exchange people for this new token, We the People, which the DAO is going to try to do all sorts of crazy things with? Yeah, so that was like the proposal for if we were to continue this DAO, looking for like other documents or other things that we could do. The proposal was to like switch to a different governance token, allow anyone that wanted to like get out to obviously get a refund. And then the people who didn't get a refund once you get a refund, would be able to exchange their people token for this new token that would allow them to vote on what we do next. Again, we had like a vote on all of this and we decided a multitude of reasons it's better to just not continue along this path. And so since this mechanism was made, the whole snapshot mechanism was made to enable for this secondary token and more voting and more like continuing the DAO and we decided not to do that. We just said it is much easier for everyone to just use the use box refund mechanism. So basically you guys decide, okay, you accomplished this amazing thing. It's time to take this to an end. So you started this thing up and you decide to destroy the multi-sig. Basically the money is now locked in the contract. And then what can happen is people who had converted ETH to people can go back to Juicebox and basically do the trade in reverse. Myself, some other people I know, we did that almost as soon as it became available to get our, our ETH back. And then about 48 hours, I got a panicked phone call from a friend of, did you sell your people yet? And I was like, why? And so the conversion rate at ETH, if I remember this right, was basically essentially four tenths of a penny. So it wasn't a full penny, it was four tenths. And what some people had started to do, and I'm curious how surprised you were, or if you knew what was going on, they started to trade the people token just like any other coin. And suddenly the people token goes from four tenths of a penny to a penny to two pennies. I think it actually hit 18 cents. So something like if you had not taken the refund and just held on and sold it at the high, it was like a 45x return after the project had failed to get the constitution and all the founders announced that it was over, this thing took a life of its own. So I'm curious what your reactions were to that and what you knew or, or what the group conversation amongst yourself was. What ended up happening was there's a handful of group chats in parts of Asia that basically picked up on this token, this token sale. And a lot of this was provided to us as secondhand translations because there was a, a number of people who were in the channel and we're typing in Chinese characters. I don't speak Chinese. And so people were providing rough translations of these things. But something interesting happened was that because the name of the token was people, we the people was why we named it that way. There was these group chats in China who latched onto it with this type of tongue-in-cheek commentary to Xi Jinping, the leader of China, to say, oh, we don't represent the communist version of China that you like. We want one that's backed by freedom and democracy, something that the constitution stands for. And they viewed this as, quote, the People's Republic of China. So it was this very funny tongue-in-cheek type commentary that people began latching onto. And the other thing that they added to it was to say, because there's Ethereum locked in this smart contract that actually backs these tokens, they were beginning to view it as a reserve currency. Yeah, wild. So the fact that the story involves Ken Griffin and Xi Jinping, this is made for a Netflix movie at some point of how they're going to tell the story. That's wild. Did the core team hold on to the token or did you guys all just use the refund? The core team did not condone, support, acknowledge the existence of any secondary markets whatsoever. Myself and I think everyone else redeemed their tokens. To participate in the secondary markets would have put us as a core team in kind of this questionable standing of would have this counted as a security. So now looking back on it, I think there's a lot of amazing things that this thing did that I want to get into just at a high level of the inspiration it gave the people that were involved. But like anything, when something's happening this quickly, there's a lot of critiques. I would have done it this way. A lot of Monday morning quarterbacking. Of the criticism you heard, what are some of the things when you look back on it, you wish you did differently? The one that comes to top of mind for me that I really wish we had done this on an L2 instead of Ethereum mainnet. There was an awful lot of people who made small contributions. And because of high gas fees, 
basically they didn't get a whole lot of refund or there just wasn't a lot of money for them to to get back after the fact. And I really do wish we had done it on an L2 so that it wouldn't have impacted people so much. Yeah, I'm actually really happy with like the way we did everything. My only concern, I guess, is like I feel like even if we actually put a lot of effort into this, I feel like we could have communicated the whole why is this not as decentralized as you expect? Because when people hear DAOs, they hear like, oh, that's like fully decentralized. No one actually has like access to anything. And due to the time that we were running into, we couldn't have done it that way. There was like a lot of critique, especially at the start of like, sure, but like we are just like sending money to a multi-state controlled by a bunch of people or like the decisions, all the decisions are not taken transparently. And everything was done that way because we wanted to open everything up as much as possible, but this was the only way to actually make it work. And even though we, I feel like we did a good faith effort on communicating that, I do feel like if we had started working on incorporating that into all the press communications, we would have maybe communicated that a little bit better. One thing there is that comedically, much of the community or people who are Web3 native viewed us as being uh, too centralized in our need to make fast, streamlined decisions. From most of our partner organizations, for example, Sotheby's, they viewed us as far too decentralized. So I don't think we would have ever appeased everybody. Yeah, I think it's such a fascinating point. And where we kind of started a lot of the questioning was, to anyone who's ever run a business, managed people, been part of any organization, this sounds crazy to the average person who's not involved in this, that you all came together, raised almost $50 million across 17,000 people. To your point about the lessons learned, the average contribution was $200. I think I read a stat that 2,000 or 3,000 people had never bought crypto before they did this. And the popularity of DAOs, if you look at Google Trends, when you guys did this, just went off the roof of everyone asking, what is this DAO? What does it do? So you clearly got the attention of a lot of people. But to your point, the question I would ask is, is there any other way but to start, quote unquote, more centralized than Web3 wants to get going? If you think about the cold start of how... in your opinion or the best critiques you heard, could it have been more decentralized from day one? I actually feel like it's kind of the opposite way. We kind of have like the cult of decentralization, to put it some way, where all the people crying for like decentralization from day one and having every decision be voted and everything be like done, never had to like manage anything or don't understand like this is not a thing that would be remotely possible because from all the people that I've talked to that actually have worked in like organizing DAOs, everyone agrees. There's no way, like they are surprised that we actually pull this off with the level of decentralization inside the core team that we have. And definitely my key takeaway from all of this is like, you cannot start decentralized and actually build and do things. You have to start with some level of, of centralization and then progressively pass that on to the community eventually. I think the best way to do it is to clearly communicate and articulate, which would have been challenging in seven days as well, what the exact roadmap is of what decision will be made by the general community and when they will start making those decisions. Because if on day one you say, hey, you decides everything, nothing gets done. But to say, hey, as soon as we win the document, the first vote will be choosing where it goes. And then as we layer on additional governance, you'll get to choose X and Y and Z and to lay out what that decentralization process looks like. I think that would have been beneficial. The decentralized, centralized is a loaded topic that people get up in arms about. The other one is this Web 2 versus Web 3. And one of the things that I like thinking about is when people think that Web 3 is nothing new and it's just repackaging, I try to think before a DAO existed, before crypto, before any of the tools you used were around, how on earth would you have done this in Web 2? And I just imagine getting an email from a random address to send money here. And it would have been the most instantaneous auto-delete, yet somehow I took a significant amount of money and sent it to you. I just think it's something we're thinking about. You couldn't do this with older technology. It's both the right time, the right people. The stuff that you pulled off is kind of amazing. I have just have a couple more questions. One is, a bit of this is, and I'm curious to get your take just because it's timely, is you can do a GoFundMe page. You can launch a web page with a centralized group and say, let's raise money. And interestingly, there's this thing going on in Canada, the trucker convoy, they raised $9 million. The money was seized and given to a charity. And so I'm just curious on your take from a decentralized group of people controlling money. How do you think about any other option to do something like this versus what you all did? 
I think what you're getting at here is in the Web2 world, you have centralized powers who have the ability to censor decisions, censor transactions, censor donations, and intentions. If people from our organization want to contribute money, and that's what the smart contract allowed, and that's what the organization wanted, we'd be able to execute on that. If we had tried to go through some other platform, for example, GoFundMe or Kickstarter, and they said, this is ridiculous. A bunch of people from the internet shouldn't be able to purchase the constitution. We're going to shut this down and stop this altogether. That's problematic. And I think one of the things that Web3 enables you to do is say that we can choose to do this. It's also interesting that Kickstarter recently, like a few months ago, announced that they are going fully on blockchain and they are going to like rebuild the whole Kickstarter platform on the blockchain. So I feel like that's a really interesting testament for like all the people saying this is just like Kickstarter with extra steps. There definitely has to be something here for like the whole company to pivot into crypto. Yeah, it's a great example. So usually I close this with asking people what they're excited to see built in the next six months and six years. But I think for you guys, what you were able to demonstrate was the power of decentralization and what's possible. I think you opened up a lot of people's minds to what could happen after this. People are talking about buying basketball teams, starting companies. Like It just inspired a lot of people. So I guess from your perspective, what are you excited for people to try to do audacious ideas, things that you'd be excited people to kind of use you as an inspiration? We've seen some of this already, but I would just be curious. Some projects either you might be advising or things you'd love to see now that you've opened up the store. For me, there's two things that are really interesting that come out of this. The first is, I think we demonstrated a model that allows people to raise a lot of money for a shared public good in a very short period of time in a low-risk fashion. This could be applied to much more than preservation of old documents. This could be thought about in the context of any type of shared public good or service to say, hey, what is it that we want to fund and how do we pull together the money to do it? And if we don't have enough money for it, just return it back to people. I think that's fundamentally interesting. That's actually in part what's led me to start assisting a couple other DAOs. For example, a short time after Constitution DAO, Kimball Musk announced his organization, Big Green DAO. It's the decentralized Web3 arm of his existing philanthropy, Big Green, that he wants to incorporate voices of people from the community. He wants to raise money from the community to enable missions around food justice and food insecurity. And so I'm like, this is really amazing what people are able to do with this. The second thing to me that's really fascinating is I think Constitution Doubt might have been one of the first high-profile projects that helped Web3 transition from being entirely protocol-centric to treasury-centric. And by that, I mean things like Ethereum, Filecoin, those tokens have intrinsic demand and need because I need those tokens in order to execute. I need block space or I need file space. So that's why those tokens are needed. I think the next wave of DAOs and Web3 businesses will end up being treasury-centric. Things like guilds of writers or developers or asset managers. And long-term, they'll need different types of mechanisms. They'll need different types of protocols. They'll need different types of incentive structures. And so it's kind of like these first formations of what do some of these businesses that look and feel like previous businesses, but now exist in this Web3 world. And I think we're going to see just this massive, massive proliferation of them in the years ahead. I was really happy that the outcome of the auction was that $43 million still went to charity. The group that was auctioning this, the Dorothy Tepper Goldman Foundation, was donating this to educational purposes. And we played a role in helping push up that price a little bit more. The contributors were able to participate in a massive project, get refunds if they wanted to. Constitution is still going to a publicly viewable museum. We introduced a huge number of people to Web3 for the first time. We kicked off a movement of people creating DAOs and interacting with the physical world. We pioneered higher levels of transparency where we dox ourselves. We provide lots of public-facing messaging. We demonstrated that project can be a totally fair launch, not VC-based. We didn't have any token allocations for ourselves. This was a truly project that was done and owned by the community. What you put in was what you got out of it. I think most importantly, or maybe equally importantly, was we also demonstrate a new way of funding shared and public goods. So all of those left really great feelings. That's awesome. Miguel, do you have anything to add? Yeah, for me, I feel like something that was really interesting is from the outside, this whole crypto and Web3 perspective has always been like, I feel like coin go up, coin go down, speculation graphs, and like that's it. And that actually like kept me away from the space for a while because I thought like this is the only thing that's happening. 
And I feel like we actually took one of the first steps in actually changing narrative a little bit and say like, maybe crypto, that crypto thing is like all about coins, but we have this new thing called Web3, which has DAOs and which has people organizing to do amazing things. And that actually inspired a lot of people to actually look into this a a bit deeper. And maybe they'll be like me and they realize this is actually like a really cool space to work on and we'll have more people building some cool things. Thank you both for joining me. This has been a really awesome conversation. Like I said, I think this was the biggest thing of 2021 in the Web3 space. Your team, what you did, the whole experiment was such an amazing inspiration to many people. And I really believe that someday when they look back on the history books, they'll say there was a group of people that tried this crazy idea. And even though it didn't work, it taught the world about a whole new thing that they could try. So thank you very much. And I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 